Father God, we love you so much. Thank you, Lord, for, for last year, and, and thank you for this year as we started off. God, I pray that uh, as we look at this uh, portion of Scripture, God, which tells us of, of Judas and his betrayal, and it tells us of Jesus and his faithfulness, uh, faithfulness to the cross as he institutes communion. Lord, would, would you open our minds and our hearts to receive your truth? God, would you let us see it truly for what it is and, and not impose our own thoughts over it? Lord, we want to humbly approach your word today as always. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you have a seat? Well, Happy New Year. We're here. It's 2022. Uh, 2021 was felt a lot like a continuation of 2020. And I'm just hoping it's not like a trilogy, right? So we get fresh start, all new. It's going to be, it's going to be great. Uh, did anybody stay up uh, till midnight? All the way to midnight? Watch it. Yeah, I did too. I did too. Uh, kind of. We, we actually fell asleep on the couch, and then the neighbors let off fireworks, and it woke me up right at midnight. But I'm counting it. It's like, yes, I made it. Uh, and then I yelled at the neighbors, and then we went to bed. Uh, I'm not turning into a grumpy old man, I promise. All right, so here's the scene. Here's what we have going on, right? Uh, we've been building the tension, building the pace in Luke uh, as, we, as we approach the cross. Uh, and, and here is the Last Supper, right? The famous Last Supper. Probably everyone, even those unfamiliar with Christianity and the church, even those who haven't grown up in the church, have some idea of what the Last Supper was, right? There's the famous painting. Everyone sits on the same side of the table. I'm sure that's how it worked. It's, this is the Last Supper, the, the big one. And, and there's some really fascinating things going on. The one which we're going to spend the most time talking about this morning is this thing we call communion. We also call it the Lord's Table, or, or we call it the Eucharist. Th these are different names, interchangeable for the same thing. This is uh, when we take bread and wine and we, we, we eat the bread, we drink the wine, and, and we uh, remember Jesus and his sacrifice. So that's kind of the focus of my pa uh, of, of the passage as, as I'm going to teach it. But we also have this betrayal of Judas taking place, right? And, and the passage is kind of bookended by, number one, Judas setting, this, the, setting up the plan, going and meeting with uh, those who wish to kill Jesus and arranging a way in which he can hand him over quietly. And then we have uh, Jesus at the Last Supper acknowledging the one who's going to betray me is sitting here with us, which of course unsettles the disciples at the dinner. They start to ask and wonder what, what's going on and who that is and what that's going to mean. Uh, but that's the scene. That's where we're at. This is a, it's a really precious and tender moment, I think, between Jesus and his disciples. He did a lot of teaching uh, much of that was in front of huge crowds, right? He did a lot of teaching with tons of people around. And then he also did those things that were just between him and his disciples. And this is one of those tender moments, personal, uh, that he's setting this up to be between him and them. They will then pass this on. It will, between, uh, it will be between them and, and the followers of Jesus who are to come later. And then we're gonna pass this down generation after generation after generation within the church. And still today, this is something we do as a, as a tender remembrance of Jesus, as a part of God's family. 
This is a kind of a family meal we take together, and it's different, <clears throat> pardon me, it's different than some of the other things that we do. So I want to dig in. I want to dig in and, and I want to see what, what we have. I tried to come up with a really clever way to walk through this. I, I love alliteration. I got nothing for you. Nothing clever here. I'm just going to talk about what, why, who. We're going to walk through it. I'm going to try to explain this plainly, okay? Uh, it, you know, it's New Year's. Let's, let's not overcomplicate things. All right, what is communion? I, I mentioned already we've got multiple terms for the same thing. Some people say the Lord's table. Some people say communion. That's what I tend toward. Uh, so I'll be saying that a lot. Some people say that the Eucharist. All different words, it's the same thing. Uh, that, that, let's just get that on the table first of all. Then let's, let's dig a little bit deeper. What, what is this really? Well, pay attention to the meal that they're sharing right here in the story. It's the Passover meal, right? The Passover meal where every year all the Jewish people would come together and they would share this meal together as a family. And what was the purpose of uh, the Passover feast? What was the purpose of this Passover meal? Well, it was to remind them of God's faithfulness in years past, to assure them of God's faithfulness presently and into the future. They were to do this every single year. This was God-ordained. He set it up every year. I want you to come together. And for the most part, through, through so, so many years, hundreds of years, the Jewish people with, with a, maybe a couple of breaks uh, always came together and celebrated this meal together. It was to remind them of what God had done. Well, what, what had God done? They were enslaved in Egypt Right? God's people were enslaved in Egypt. They were crying out for salvation. And God said, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this, but, but I'm going to do this in a, in a particular way. And that was the beginning of the Passover feast. I don't want to go too far into the details. That's a whole other message right there, just the Passover and all the symbolism and, and the significance of it. But suffice to say that the whole point then was, was God was going to save them, and he did, save them from the bondage they were in. He was going to lead them out into freedom and salvation, which he did. And that the whole of the Passover feast was going to be just littered with symbolism uh, and foreshadowing for when Jesus comes as the perfect Passover lamb and, and frees us not physically from bondage, but spiritually from the bondage we find ourselves in sin and death and, and the, uh, the outcome that we are all headed toward if Jesus does not step in and intervene. And so Passover, as they're taking it, is something that, that, that his disciples and Jewish people were very familiar with. We do this every year. We do this to remember God and his faithfulness. We do this in hope of what is to come. And as Jesus essentially replaces Passover with communion, it's to serve a similar purpose. Every week when we get together and we take the bread and we take the juice, we're to remember God's faithfulness. We're to remember not God leading his people out of Egypt, although it wouldn't hurt us to remember that as well, but we're to remember Jesus leading his people out of sin and out of death by going to the cross in our place as our substitute for our sins, giving us his righteousness and his grace and his mercy, his forgiveness, right? So when we do this, it is to remember, to remind ourselves, and it is to give us hope. 
that as we look forward, obviously not all is made right right now. We live in a world uh, that's not perfect, as the last two years would show us, right? Lots of problems, lots of things going on, lots of sin, lots of death, lots of destruction. But Jesus is coming. Jesus is returning. And so one of the functions of communion, like Passover, is forward-looking. It's looking out toward the hope which is coming for us. And it's reminding ourselves that God has been faithful in the past. He is faithful today. He will be faithful on into the future. And so that is, I would say, kind of the first function of, of what communion or the Lord's Supper is. It is to remember, to remind. Additionally, I would say that, that communion, and we need to be really clear on this, communion adds nothing to Jesus' work. Throughout church history, we've gotten this wrong a lot, right? That if I'm not taking communion in a certain way, in a certain frequency with the church or in this uh, place or, or at this time, if I'm not doing it just right, this has some sort of effect on my salvation or my standing before God, that I am a, a lesser Christian if I'm not doing this, or I'm not a real Christian until I do this, and I just want to be crystal clear. We add nothing to Jesus' work on the cross. We cannot add anything to Jesus' work on the cross. In fact, to add anything to Jesus' work on the cross is actually to distort and lose it all, right? Remember Galatians, which we talked through uh, here just not long ago, that to add anything to the gospel, to add any work of our own, is to spoil the whole thing. No, there's, there's one reason we're saved, and that's Jesus and his work. Now, we can remember his work as we come together and we take communion, but we cannot add to it. We cannot add to it. We must be so clear on that because it's so easy to fall into some sort of man-made religion or ritual, uh, which I'll get into a little bit more uh, here in a minute, but we, we cannot do that. Communion does not save. Communion simply represents the act which saved us, right? Small distinction, important distinction. Communion does not save us. If you place your faith in Jesus, you are saved. Right? The thief on the cross who says, Jesus, as he's dying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What does Jesus say? Truly, I tell you, you will be with me in paradise today. Does he say, first, you need to take communion. All right, somebody get this guy some bread and some wine. You need to be baptized. Let's do a couple of things. Check them off the list. Then you can be with me. No, it doesn't work that way. Right? It's so simple. Faith in Jesus is what saves Anything beyond that, it, it's just a remembrance. We just remind ourselves of what God has done, not anything that we do. So that, that's what communion or the Lord's Supper is. Now, why do we do it? I've, I've touched on this already, right? We, we do this at first to remember, but, but more specifically, like, why do we, you know, what, what do we remember? Why are we doing this in the first place? Why is it so important? And I would just, I would just remind you of the gospel, uh, if you're a Christian, we need to be reminded of the gospel constantly. And if you are not a Christian, if this is not something, not something you're familiar with, th then I would tell you of the gospel, right? 
The gospel, in, in just as simple terms as I can put it, is, is the good news that Jesus comes and saves us from our sin, right? That we are separated from God because of our sin, and we, we all sin. We are all separated from God. Jesus comes and he rescues us. He, he saves us from our sin and our separation from God by going to the cross. He's killed in my place for my sins, in your place for your sins. Jesus dies, the perfect righteous one. Having no sin of his own, he dies for our sin in our place as our substitute. And when we place our faith in Jesus, when we say, Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life. Jesus, come into my heart. Jesus, would you be, uh, would you be my God? I believe what the Bible says about you. I believe it's true then we exchange our unrighteousness for his righteousness. That he takes our sin, he deals with it on the cross, he gives us his righteousness, and now we can stand up straight. We can, we can stand up before God and, and, and enter into his presence eternally because we stand not in our own righteousness, but Jesus' righteousness, right? So it's so important that we understand what the, what the gospel is. And, and how was the gospel accomplished? Well, it was accomplished by Jesus physically being broken. That's why we break the bread. That's what the, the bread or the cracker represents. It's his broken body. So that's kind of the first thing we're to remember is that this, this cost Jesus so much. It was so costly for him. His body was broken and his blood was spilled. I thought this was an interesting uh, thing. Josh Rice, uh, who's, uh, who, who's on staff with us here, he's out preaching in Silverton this morning. We were talking about this yesterday, and, and he pointed out something I'd never really caught before. Uh, maybe this is new to you too, but, but when we take communion, the, the, the bread and the wine are not mixed, right? They're separated. You go, well, obviously, because uh, we don't want soggy bread. But uh, like, no, there, there's a purpose in this. What do you have when you have blood separated from body? Death, right? When the blood is outside the body, that is not a good thing. Not good things are happening there, right? So even in the elements being separate is a reminder uh, that Jesus had to die for our sins, that his blood had to be removed from his body for us to be forgiven. So that is the, the gospel in, in kind of its simplest form. That's why we do this. That's why we, we do communion. Uh, that's why we, we partake in the Lord's Supper. Uh, yeah, let's keep cruising. Number three, who is to do it? Who is to take communion? This is the big question, or one of the big questions. Who is gonna, who's gonna participate in communion? Uh, some of you may be familiar with, with Jonathan Edwards. Uh, he, he was a, uh, an early American uh, preacher and theologian. Uh, he, he was a part of the Great Awakening. Uh, big deal. Total aside, has nothing to do with the message, but my wife made me promise I'd work this in. She was reading uh, about Jonathan Edwards. His grandfather's name is, uh, let's see, I have it here, Solomon Stoddard. And my wife recognized Stoddard is a name in her family. It, uh, anyway, she did a little research. She's related to Jonathan Edwards. Yeah, isn't that crazy? He's like, well, Jonathan Edwards' grandfather is my wife's eighth, eighth great-grandfather. And so he, that makes Jonathan Edwards like ninth, second cousin or something. But hey, we'll take it. Uh, 
it's a big deal. Like my family goes all the way back to like Tennessee or something. Uh, so nothing, that's about as far as we know. I don't know. Uh, so that's kind of cool. Anyway, total aside, my wife, <laughs> it's so pointless. My wife's like, work that in. That's really cool. Uh, I'm like, all right, we can, we can brag. That's how, that's how petty I am. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> so silly. So silly. Okay. So Jonathan Edwards. So th- here's how this relates. Uh, his, his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, believed that communion was for all to, to come and partake. If you were a Christian, if you were not a Christian, everyone should come and take communion. If you're a Christian, this is a reminder of his sacrifice on the cross. And if you are not a Christian, this may serve as, as something that would point you toward Jesus' sacrifice. And maybe, maybe taking communion would be the thing that makes you realize that I need his broken body, I need his spilled blood to cover my sins, and that it can be uh, effective both for the believer and the unbeliever. It's a solid viewpoint, which, you can, which I think you can defend with scripture. Also a solid viewpoint is that of Jonathan Edwards, which, which he disagreed with his grandfather. He said, no, this is truly only for the believer, that only professing Christians should come to the Lord's table and partake in communion. And you can make a really good argument for that too. I, I'm not really gonna make an argument either way, but I am gonna point out uh, maybe some, some truths here and, and uh, then you can kind of come to your own decision on that. Uh, first of all, if we look at the first communion, if we look at the Lord's table when Jesus is handing out his broken body and his spilled blood, who's at the table? Thomas is there. Remember what Thomas does? He runs away. When, when Jesus, well, in fact, they, they all end up running away, right? But when, when Jesus is, is arrested and he's taken to his crucifixion, Thomas is nowhere to be seen. He runs away. And then when they hear news that Jesus has risen on that following Sunday, uh, Thomas says, I can't believe it. I don't think it's real. I think they're making it up. Unless I put my fingers in the holes in his hands, and put my hand in, the, in his side where the spear pierced, I'm not going to believe. And with incredible comedic timing, Jesus shows up at that moment and says, all right, put your fingers in the hole. Put your hand in my side. See that I'm real. Doubting Thomas, he's at the table taking communion with Jesus. Right? Jesus knows exactly what Thomas is going to do in the next several hours and he says take my body and take my blood eat and drink in remembrance of me does he separate him no right who else is at the table peter peter's at the table peter is taking communion and before this night is done he's going to deny jesus Three times. uh, Peter, the denier, is at the table and Jesus is asking him to share in communion with him. I think that's incredibly significant. And in fact, Peter ends up, after all of that happens, if if we flash forward in Peter's story, he gives up on ministry. Jesus has said, you are going to be the rock on which I build my church. And after he denies Jesus, he goes back to fishing. He gives up on it. He's like, I've ruled myself out. I've disqualified myself from ministry. And Jesus comes and pursues Peter, even still, 
even after his resurrection, he comes and he pursues Peter and he gets him off the boat and he says, no, I want to restore you. I want to forgive you and I want to send you back out to do ministry. And Peter uh, does and, and is the rock on which the church is built and does incredible things for the remainder of his life until he too is crucified for his declaration of Jesus. But Peter, who's about to deny Jesus this very night, is asked to participate in communion with Jesus. And finally, Judas is at the table. Judas is at the table. The one who's actively betraying Jesus. Money in his pocket for selling out Jesus. And he takes communion with him. Now, clearly, Judas is not saved. Judas is not elect. Judas is not one of the believers. Judas betrays Jesus and has a tragic, tragic, tragic end. It's one of the saddest stories in all of the Bible, Judas' story. It's so, so sad. But he's invited to take communion, which I think is an argument for Solomon Stoddard's point that all should take communion. Now, I've got some counterpoints for this too, but, but I think it's interesting. And I think the big takeaway for this is it's not our place to really judge this. We can give some guidance and some direction. Generally, as a church, we've held that, that the Lord's table is for believers to take. But if you see somebody going up and taking the cracker and taking the bread, and you're like, I know them. I know their life. They're not a Christian. They don't act like a Christian. They don't have their stuff together. Not our place to take. And in fact, if we have that mindset, we're coming to communion with the wrong heart and we ought to sit back down, right? It's not for us to, to make that call. Jesus doesn't single out Judas, even though he knows exactly what's happening. Ultimately, if, if, if communion, and, and I'll just kind of lay my cards on the table. I think communion really is for believers. But if, if somebody comes and takes communion, it's just not, not our call to make, right? It shouldn't bother us one bit. We shouldn't be disturbed by this. Who's taking communion? We don't know what's going on in their heart. We don't know what the Lord is doing there. We can totally leave that to the Lord and know that Jesus, he's sufficient to sort that out and figure that out. And maybe he's, he's convicting that person in their heart in a really powerful way right now in this moment. A good friend of mine uh, who, who was not a Christian, professing atheist, wanted nothing to do with Jesus, had his conversion moment during communion in a church service. Heard the sermon, everyone standing up and getting communion. He felt like now's the time. I feel like, he, he tells me, I feel like God's telling me now's the time to take communion. Gets up and takes communion. Isn't that incredible? Now, how easy would it be for me to say, I know that guy. He's an atheist. What's he doing? What's he doing? No, Jesus was doing something there. So let's just calm down on that, right? And, and I don't think that's ever been a problem in our church, but, but maybe you've had those thoughts or, or, or seen those things play out. And I, I'm just telling you, we, you can release that. Like We don't need to be concerned about that in, in the least. Uh, John Calvin has a, has a great quote here. He says, no one bears away from this sacrament more than is gathered with the vessel of faith. You catch that? 
no one bears away from the sacrament more than is gathered with the vessel of faith. If you come to communion as a true believer, having, having a, a deep and a rich faith in Jesus and what he's done, then you take away from communion a, a great deal, right? You have a, a, a large vessel of faith that you get to take away. And if somebody comes to communion, not a Christian, total atheist, hates the whole thing. He's just eating bread and drinking a sip of juice, right? It's, he's not defiling anything sacred. It, it really is just bread and juice. What, what's important, right, is, is, what, is what it's reminding us, of, uh, reminding us of. What's important is what's going on in our hearts. Uh, so we, we just don't need to worry about any of that. Uh, all right, let me, let me point this out. If, if one of the major purposes of communion is to remember Jesus, you have to know him. How can you remember something which you've not known in the first place? And if, if you, I, I don't know everyone in this room, far from it. I don't know where you're at. If you've not known Jesus, if you feel like you've never known him, so how can I remember him? Here's the great news. Jesus wants you to know him. Jesus is pursuing you. That's why you're sitting here right now, hearing the words I'm saying right now. I absolutely believe that, that God is working through this message in your heart to say, now's the time to know me. He wants you to know him. Would you give your heart to Jesus? Would you surrender to Jesus? Would, would maybe today be the first time you take communion, truly and honestly, remembering and looking to your Savior who died on the cross in your place? Right? That's the great news. That's the great news of communion. Um, before I move to my, my next point, I think it's worth jumping to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is something that, that comes to mind. Uh, it's a little bit of an aside, but I think it's, it's worth mentioning here because some of you may be thinking about this already. Uh, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven is the, uh, the verse we're looking at here, 27 through 29. This is a letter from Paul to the church in Corinth whose communion services were a wreck, right? People are getting drunk. Uh, other people are being passed over completely. Poor people are going hungry. It's a mess. And, and Paul is addressing this. He's saying in, in verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. I've really struggled with this verse and communion and, and I've, I've struggled to, to reconcile like, I mean, every week I come to communion, there, there is, there's guilt on my conscience of one form or another. Like every, I've yet to go an entire week without sinning. I don't know about you. Uh, I've yet to go a day, right? So how can I go a week and come to communion with this clear conscience? It, it, what does it mean to, to come and eat the bread and drink the cup in an unworthy manner? I, I honestly was, was really terrified by this passage. And I, I just think it's worth kind of understanding what's going on in the context here, that Paul is, uh, is addressing a specific church and what's happening. 
they were coming together. They did communion as a part of a, like a big potluck meal. Everybody comes together. They're all having food. But what happens is the wealthy are bringing tons of food, gorging out on it, getting drunk, passing out, whatever. And then you have poor people who have nothing to eat at all. Uh, and, and they're doing this in the name of the Lord. Like, what is happening? As, as Paul here is saying, you need to examine your heart. I, I think in part what he's saying without fully digging in, we too could spend a whole message talking about this passage. But if, if you are cutting people out of communion because they, they don't have their own food to bring or, or they're, they don't have anything to eat, or you're, you're overindulging, in either case, are you remembering Jesus? Is your heart really right? Are you, are you partaking in the Lord's Supper in a way that says, I remember Jesus' sacrifice for me? Well, if you remember how Jesus gave up his own life for you, that you could be included in his family, and you see someone at a table with no food, wouldn't remembering Jesus move you to share some food with a person who has no food? Should anyone go hungry during a church banquet? No, that's counter to everything Jesus uh, is about, right? The, the poor should not go hungry at a church banquet. That's not fitting. You're not remembering Jesus if that's what's happening. And if you're overindulging, you're getting drunk, uh, like, is that also remembering Jesus? Is your heart in the right place? I would argue, no, not at all. And so when it comes to worthiness, um, Martin Luther has a, a great quote. I'll read this and, and we'll move on. Dear friend, you must not consider yourself so much from the standpoint of worthiness or unworthiness of your person as from that of your need, which makes the grace of Christ necessary. If you recognize and feel your need, you have the requisite worthiness and preparation. What is Luther saying? He's saying, if, if you come to communion, if we get to the portion of the service where we are passing out the bread and the juice, and you feel like, I'm not worthy to take communion, that makes you worthy to take communion, right? To have the hard posture that says, Jesus, I am desperately in need of you. Jesus, I, I can't make it on my own. Jesus, I am wrecked and ruined. Jesus, I'm a sinful person who's totally hopeless and cannot hope to get to you unless you first come to me. Then you get it. You understand it. That's not a reason to avoid taking communion. That's a great reason to take communion. When you feel totally just wrecked by your sin. Jesus is there. He's there in that place. It's a great, great place to find him. So don't let some distorted view of God's grace keep you from communion at the very time when you need it most. We, we remember his death in our place and we remember the victory that he has. We remember that it's not just baby Jesus in a manger like we uh, think about a Christmas and it's not just Jesus on the cross bleeding out and dying for us, but it's victorious Jesus who made a sacrifice once and for all. Um, Hebrews 10, 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. That's where Jesus is now, victorious. And so we get to share not only in Jesus' death and burial, uh, but his resurrection, his victory, 
that Jesus sits in power right now waiting for his second coming when his power will be fully revealed to the world. And so we don't need to remain in that place of, of lowliness. We don't need to allow sin to keep us down quite the opposite. Jesus has dealt with all that. He said, come, share this meal with me. Remember that I have done it. He's accomplished it fully. Okay, so how do we do this? We, we remember Jesus, as we've talked about, but we do not make this a ritual or a ceremony of any kind. And I think this, this too is a trap we fall into. Even in an evangelical church, even in, in a church that, that adheres closely to the Bible, it's easy to take this thing and, and I'll, I'll even just confess, like the way it's set up in our service makes it almost like a ritual, uh, right? Almost like some sort of ceremony or, or special thing. Like what's the posture at the table when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper? They're reclining a table, right? They're leaning back. They're enjoying a, 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 a festive meal together. There's lots of food. This is not like this somber, I'm, I mean, I think there were somber tones, certainly because this is Jesus' final meal and, and he's conveying some, some last instructions to his disciples. But I mean, for, for the most part, this is it's a celebration. It's a ritual, or I'm sorry, not a ritual, but it's, it's like a, a regular meal. They're reclining. They're not kneeling. There's, there's, and I just want to kind of like remove some of the mystique around communion and just say, like, it, it is significant that Jesus died on the cross for us. Uh, but as we take communion, like, there's no, like, right or, or wrong way. Like, it's not this special thing. You don't need a pastor to be uh, in charge of this whole thing. Nobody's back there, like, uh, blessing the oyster crackers or anything. Uh, I think we get them at Walmart. I don't know. Like, it's, it's okay. Like, we... We can make this very, and, and I realize I'm, I'm probably offending half of you right now, right? Because so many of our churches have this like very uh, ritualistic way about doing this. Like this, this is so important, and it is important, that we must do it in just this certain way. Scripture gives us no instructions for that. Scripture gives us no instructions for the kind of bread it needs to be or the way in which it is or that we need to kneel or say or sing any particular song. Uh, in my research for this, I, I read of a bunch of different ways churches handle this. And, and I mean, there's a whole spectrum, right? Uh, and, and a lot of churches uh, kind of err on the side of ritualistic. And, and just remember what Jesus taught, right? Remember consistently Jesus was tearing down the things which the Pharisees had set up as these man-made traditions and this is the way it needs to be because this is the way it's always been and this is the way we're going to keep doing it. And, and that ends up leaving people on the outside and Jesus just tears all that down. He says, no, I just want relationship with my people. And so I think we can, we can make this too big of a deal in the sense of like having it just a certain way and, and doing it in, in, you know, just being very set apart and, and separate and certainly in, in the first century, I mean, they're, they're coming together and they're having a church potluck. And I assume maybe somebody's standing up and he says, hey, let's remember Jesus' body that was broken and his blood that was spilled. Let's eat, let's drink, right? It's like, you, when you come together, we want to remember this. And it's not necessarily this, this ritual as we set it up every time. Let me move into what is my final point here. 
when do we take communion? Right after this guy's done talking. <laughs> That's when. I know, if I know one thing about this church, it's when this guy shuts up, we take communion. That's what I know. No, listen, uh, there's, there's, much like some of the other aspects of this, there's a lot of different schools of thought. Um, let me just point to this. God sets up Passover many, many, many years ago, and this was to be done yearly, right? Every year, God's people would come together, and they would remember how God saved them. And what does the people of, uh, what do the people of, of Israel do from Passover to Passover? They pretty much forget all about how Jesus saved them, right? Uh, like, we have a habit of forgetting what the Lord has done. And in fact, Passover is just one of several feasts throughout the year, sprinkled throughout the year. God wanted to constantly be drawing his people back and reminding them of who he is and what he's done for them. And I would argue still it's not enough. Uh, some, some churches do communion quarterly or, or monthly. And I think that like, you can make a valid case for that. And I think that's great. I think monthly is better than yearly because we, we need to be reminded monthly of Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. As a church, we take it weekly, every single Sunday, both in Salem and Silverton, we take communion. The guys were messing with me before the service, and they said, hey, we're out of bread. We can't do communion today. I'm like, that's my whole message. Uh, they were just kidding. We have it. We're good. We're good. Uh, every Sunday, we take communion. Why? Because we need to be reminded every single week. And I'm going to go a step further, and, and this, is, this is, you know, this is just me talking. Uh, I'll take it for what it's worth, which is not much, okay? Um, I think possibly Jesus is holding up bread and he's holding up wine, which were staple foods in that culture. Every meal they got together, they may not have meat. Meat was expensive and this would not be something you'd have at every meal. But at every meal, you'd have some kind of bread and some kind of wine. You worry about contaminants in the water, so the fermentation of wine protects you from getting sick and stuff, right? So bread and wine, these are the things of life. These are the things that sustain us. These are the things you must eat every day. And he says, when you do this, do it in remembrance of me. I, I want to make an argument that he's saying, when you eat bread or drink wine, remember me. How often is that? Three times a day. We're in America. Eight times a day. Totally Josh Rice's joke. I stole it. Okay. Eight times a day, right? We, every time we eat bread, be it gluten-free or not, every time we drink wine, remember Jesus. These are the things that sustain us. And, and when we eat food and drink anything, we think, God, I, I need this food to nourish my body, but I need you even more to nourish my soul. And so I think an argument could be made that every time we gather any number of believers, two, three, right? Where, where two or more gathered, I am there, right? And so when your family is eating dinner, would it be wrong to say, this is the bread of Jesus' body. Let's eat this in remembrance of him. And this is the, the juice, milk, water, whatever. I don't even think it matters. Beer, that is Jesus' blood, right? Spilled for us. And like this food nourishes our body, this nourishes our soul. Let's remember him as we share this meal together. I don't think that's wrong. All things considered, I don't think we're going to get to heaven and Jesus is going to say, you remembered me a little too much. <laughs> a little carried away with the remembrance. Wish you would have forgotten me a little, right? That's, 
if we're going to err on one side or another, let's do this too often. Let's remember Jesus too frequently. And the risk is this. The risk is that by doing it every day, by, by, by doing this practically at every meal, that it, become, it becomes less valuable. And, and those that would, that would argue for taking communion quarterly or yearly or, or monthly would say, this, we need to like break away from life and stop for a minute, for, for a minute and really think about the Lord. And I think that that is, I think that's valuable. But I think we need it more often than that. And I think that we can fight against the temptation to make this routine uh, within our minds and within our hearts without, um, you know, taking away the frequency in which we, we take communion. I would argue for frequently. Here in the church service is great. It doesn't have to be oyster crackers and juice. Honestly, that's not the way it's always been done. It, I think anytime we have food and drink, let's do this in remembrance of our Lord. Um, we, we are now going to uh, take communion as a church, uh, as promised. <laughs> I'm going to stop talking and, and we're going to do this thing together. Here's my, here would be my takeaway for you. Anytime we, we approach the Lord's table, whether this is together as a church or, or at home with your family or out with your friends who are believers, anytime we would, we would stop and think, this is Jesus' body which is broken. This is his blood that is spilled. The new covenant that he makes with us. I would just argue like, let's, let's remember him. Let's make sure that we know we're not adding anything to it, but that it is fully accomplished in Christ and we are simply reminded of that which he did for us. And then let's do this frequently together. So I wanna read this quote from Charles Spurgeon. We act as if we were going to live here forever. And we did not expect our Lord to come and take us away to be with him. We act as if we had no master but our own wanton will. We act disparagingly as if we had no shepherd to take care of us and no savior who had redeemed us with his precious blood. Come, brethren, this will never do. It is dishonorable to our Lord. It is disgraceful to ourselves. You see, the reason why the supper should have been instituted, our treacherous memories require it. Let us gather to it as a most needful, though right royal feast, for we have need to be reminded of our dear, our own dear Lord, who sweetly says to us, this do in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread now in remembrance of him and his blood of the new covenant. And in doing so, we combat our treacherous memories who would tend to forget our Lord. Let's worship.